My name is Savitri Taylor. I'm an associate professor at the Latrobe Law School. Welcome to this conversation on refugee protection in the Asia-Pacific region, which is being presented jointly by Latrobe Law School and Latrobe Asia. Um, Latrobe University acknowledges the Wurundjeri and Banawarong people as the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet. We recognize their ongoing connection to the land and value their unique contribution to the university and wider Australian society. In a moment, I will be introducing our speakers to you. Associate Professor Marianne Kenny will then facilitate a conversation between the speakers about refugee protection in the Asia-Pacific region, and you'll all get to listen to the conversation. Uh, after that, we will be giving you an opportunity to ask questions of all of the speakers, including Marianne. Um, and I'll be uh, emceeing the question and answer session. If any of you are live tweeting this event, please use the hashtag uh, Latrobe Law so that we can all keep track of the Twitter conversation. And uh, you may also wish to follow at Latrobe Law, which is Latrobe Law School's uh, Twitter account. Okay, introducing the speakers. Mary Ann Kenny is an associate professor at the School of Law at Murdoch University. She researches and publishes in the area of refugee law and policy. She's also a qualified legal practitioner and registered migration agent. Mary Ann is currently a member of the Ministerial Council on Asylum Seekers and Detention, which provides advice to the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection on issues relating to refugee and asylum seeker policy. She's also a member of the Joint Advisory Committee, which provides advice to the Government of Australia and the Government of Nauru in relation to Offshore Processing Centre on Nauru. Renuka Balasubramaniam is a Malaysian lawyer who has represented numerous refugees in their appeals against sentences of caning imposed for illegal entry to Malaysia. Um, and some of um, the cases um, that she's dealt with were useful in the scuttling of the 2011 Malaysia solution in the High Court. Over her 10-year career, Renuka has also represented refugees appealing negative status determination decisions by UNHCR and victims of human trafficking claiming compensation. She's currently, I'm very pleased to say, at Latrobe Law School researching Malaysia's practice in relation to temporary humanitarian protection. Lakshan Dias is a leading lawyer in Sri Lanka for human rights and refugee cases. He is currently president of Transparency International Sri Lanka chapter, chairperson of Sanrim, which is a network for refugees and migrants, chairperson of Rights Now Collective for Democracy, and bureau member for South Asians for Human Rights. He has previously served as a chair and deputy chair of the South Asian Working Group of the Asia Pacific Refugee Rights Network and as a member of that network's steering committee. Yunita Purnama is the head of division of organizational paralegal and education of the Jagata Legal Aid Institute. She has worked on human rights advocacy, especially related to the urban poor and vulnerable people through stru the structural legal aid movement. She, along with other people who have the same concern, uh, started to handle refugee advocacy informally, and in 2012, they formed the network called SUAKA, which is the Indonesian Civil Society Network for Refugee Rights protection. Suwaka is the first national and voluntary civil society organization which focuses on refugee legal advocacy in Indonesia. In Suwaka, she has experience in legal aid and con conducts public awareness and national advocacy. Recently, she was appointed as the secretariat coordinator of Suwaka. 
Now, I'm afraid to say the other advertised speaker, Imran Khan Langari, was unfortunately unable to get a visa to enter Australia in time to participate in this forum. So I apologize for that. And it was a close call with Lakshan and, you know, I don't know what problem with the Australian government has with human rights lawyers, but... Yanita uh, um, and Lakshan are, and Imran was supposed to be, part of a delegation of members of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network who will be spending the next 10 days travelling around Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra, Wellington and Auckland, meeting with government, NGO and community representatives. The Refugee Council of Australia is supporting the delegation and details about the trip and the associated public events can be found on the Refugee Council of Australia website. This event is the Melbourne public event. And I should also say that the Refugee Council has left on the registration desk just now, so you wouldn't have seen it when you were coming in, uh, handouts. So there's um, a handout called Improving Refugee Protection in Asia Pacific, How Australia Can Make a Practical Difference. And then there is also a briefing on five different countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, these will eventually be on their website, but you can pick up hard copies right now as you're leaving. Over to you, Marianne. Thank you very much, Savitri, for, for organising the event tonight. And thanks to Latrobe Law School for hosting the event. Also just to acknowledge Apron and this fantastic um, organisation of, of events that you have going on around, around Australia. Um, I also just want to acknowledge my colleagues from the Centre for Human Rights Education and the Academy of Social Sciences who've just run a two-day workshop on issues to do with um, refugees in the Asia-Pacific region, which has been absolutely fascinating. Um, and I've heard some amazing things over the last couple of days, and you'll get a bit of a taste of that tonight. Um, so I think we've got about an hour to have a conversation. Um, so just some questions and answers. Um, I'm going to try to focus on hearing a lot about what's going on in Sri Lanka, in Malaysia and Indonesia first so we get a sense of what's happening in those countries. I know that many people here will be interested to know what is what is the impact of Australia's policies and particularly Operation Sovereign Borders, what sorts of impacts have they had uh, in the region and, and we'll get to that. Um, but I think it's um, really important we hear a little bit about the situation in each of their countries. So I don't know who would like to start. Um, maybe Anita, you're next to me. Um, to, so if you could just talk a little bit about what the current issues are, perhaps perhaps some I know statistics are, can be can be dull. We want to talk about people, not numbers. But what are the current issues that um, are facing Indonesia in terms of refugees and asylum seekers in your country? Um, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear a little bit about. Um, what are the rights of refugees and asylum seekers in Indonesia? What, what sorts, why are they there? Um, and what are their experiences? So basically, uh, the asylum seeker and refugee in, in Indonesia, they don't have the legal rights. They only have uh, the temporary stay as long as uh, the UNHCR and the international organization uh, do the RSD, the Refugee Status Determination, and, uh, and give the support for them. Uh, I will try to, to divide the problem of the asylum seeker and refugee in Indonesia by, uh, by three steps, by the law, by the 
structure and by the culture. Uh, by the law, uh, there's an absence of uh, of the law in Indonesia to protect the asylum seeker and refugee. Even though the Constitution of Indonesia acknowledges that uh, there is a right to seek asylum, there is no specific law to talk about how to handle the asylum and refugee in Indonesia. Uh, in our law of the international relation, it stated that uh, we have uh, um, we must have the presidential decree to take uh, uh, to handle about this. However, uh, it is still a draft and it's still not yet enacted. And about the, the structure, I think there is a miscoordination between the institution. Uh, there is no, because there is uh, no law, uh, they, uh, the, every institution, they don't know how to coordinate each other. Sometimes uh, they overlap it, sometimes they uh, not involve other institutions. Uh, like in the central government, and, and there's miscoordination between central and local. So sometimes, uh, for example, in Aceh, last time in Aceh, the MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they want to use humanitarian approach, while the military wants to use the security approach. Um, but the local government is very supportive to Rohingya. This kind of this is happening because there is no specific law how they can coordinate each other. And uh, by the culture, there, there kind of uh, misconception of what is the asylum of the refugee uh, itself. Uh, the majority of the people they don't understand uh, what is the asylum seeker, what is refugee, what is different between the illegal migrant and, and them, and. Even it is not uh, so popular even in, in the human rights activists itself. So uh, there's still not a, uh, still a lot of uh, public interest that needed to uh, to the people about this. Um, can you just talk a little bit about um, where do asylum seekers and refugees come from? Where, why why do they end up in, in Indonesia? What countries are they from? And from your work with Suaka in, in representing those people, what sorts of experiences have they had in their journey to to get to Indonesia? Okay, uh, the majority of the asylum seekers and refugees in Indonesia. Uh, usually from Afghanistan. This is the, uh, the biggest number. And what they have, uh, the journey to Indonesia, they have a very uh, difficult journey. Uh, there is Batur there. Uh, he he make a film, documentary film, how hard the journey from uh, to Indonesia. Uh, in Indonesia, since there is no domestic uh, protection, and sometimes the asylum seeker and the refugee, they don't, they lack of the information. What is the rights of the asylum and refugee? So sometimes they can go to, uh, uh, they can go to the, the false uh, solution. Maybe they won't go to the board by by anything solution that actually not right by them, uh, because they don't have enough information. What happened uh, to them? So. Yeah, I think it is a very important issue. Okay, so I might just throw over to you, Renuka, to talk a little bit about <coughs> Malaysia. And it's quite a different... You have a very high number of refugees and asylum seekers living mm -hmm. and have been for some time in Malaysia. So can you talk a little bit about 
where they're from and, and what their experiences are. Why are they, why are they in Malaysia? And I think also, too, it'd be interesting to hear about, I think often we, and we had a chat about this before, that often people think that all refugees and asylum seekers want to come to Australia. In, in Southeast Asia, that's, that's their ultimate destination. For some it might be, but what happens to people if they, if they can't leave Malaysia? Why are they there? So, um, in, at the last count, there were about 150,000 registered refugees in Asia. That's a bit of an echo, isn't it? So, um, out of that 150,000, um, about 138,000 are from Burma, comprising um, the ethnic minority as well as Rohingya, and uh, only about 11,000 come from other countries. So, that would be Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, um, we've got some Africans. But those uh, constitute us the smaller group. And interestingly, even though 150,000, uh, about 130,000 comprise Burmese, the system of registering refugees in Malaysia by UNHCR is a bit, I think it's a bit wonky because it's the the largest group doesn't actually get direct access to UNHCR. They have to find a community group based on their ethnicity, give their names to these groups, and wait for UNHCR to request for names from these groups. And this happens maybe once a year. So the process by which um, Burmese refugees are likely to get registered through UNHCR is extremely slow. I have had uh, clients who just haven't been able to get registration even though they've been there six years, ten years, been arrested, deported, made their way back again, arrested again, and still no hope of registration through UNHCR. On the contrary, for example, refugees from the Middle East, Iran and Iraq, they're able to get registration fairly quickly. Registration might take maybe, it might take six months to a year to actually be registered because when you turn up at UNHCR's door, they'll give you a date. So maybe in two months, you've got to come back and then you'll get registered. And then you'll have to come back for RSD interviews maybe six months to a year later. And the actual decision as to whether you get refugee status or not may take as much as a year, two years. Um, so it's extremely slow. Um, even, uh, so you were asking about groups and you were asking about... What are the, so what are their experiences? While right. Because they, they are waiting for a long period of time. So what rights do they have, mm. if any, in, in Malaysia and how are they treated? Yeah, I would, I, I tend to agree that most refugees who come to Malaysia are, are considering Malaysia transit country rather than a destination country. Um, a big pull factor, of course, is the fact that UNHCR maintains an office there. I think that another big pull factor is the fact that Malaysia had the highest number of resettlements in 2013 compared to all the other countries in the world. Um, now, there's a reason for that, and the reason is that the Malaysian government's um, negotiation or agreement to have UNHCR in Malaysia was premised on this idea that there would be high resettlements. And this has been kind of the trade-off for 
um, facilitating UNHCR's office in Malaysia in exchange for, um, uh, in exchange, and it has been premised on the fact that they will be resettled. Unfortunately, because resettlements are slow, um, the refugees have no choice but to remain in limbo uh, in Malaysia. UNHCR is not, does not have the capacity to, to support them. Um, perhaps the very marginalized groups, uh, very vulnerable, say women, children, people with disabilities, they might get some support. But I understand that um, the annual budget is something like 14, 14 million US. Um, which you can't really do much with 150,000 registered refugees and registrations going on um, every day. So, um, in terms of the number of non-citizens in Malaysia, our population is 30 million. Um, we have six million non-citizens, of which an estimated uh, two-thirds of those are irregular uh, or undocumented. Um, the point I wanted to make was in relation to rights. I, I think it's common knowledge that there are, Malaysia does not recognize refugees. What does that mean? What it means is that the government is doing, the government policy tends to be that as long as we don't recognize refugees, as long as we don't sign the convention, we owe them no obligations. Um, and so if they choose to come here to wait in limbo until such time that they are uh, resettled, that's the choice that they make. Um, I, I, I feel that since my time here in Australia, and I've been you know, following the conversation, one of the things that's uh, very interesting to me is the way the public is so engaged in policy making. And of course, the refugee issue is such a, such a, uh, it's kind of like the issue that most parties don't want to touch, the third rail. Um, in Malaysia, that's not the case at all. Uh, I don't know if you've been following, in Malaysia presently, the Prime Minister has been accused of funneling 700 million US dollars into his, his personal account, and he just won't do anything about it, won't step down, won't fall to pressure, has been known to have bribed uh, politicians to keep quiet, the judiciary, no one can do anything about it. So our democratic institutions are not very st strengthened, um, and therefore, even if, if in relation to citizens that's the case, you can imagine uh, there's no political will to actually do anything in relation to non-citizens. So that's, uh, as a result, you have refugees who can't get married, can't get divorced, can't send their kids to school, um, can't really deal with domestic violence if it, it should occur, um, can't get a job, can't open a bank account. Um, yeah, those would be some simple day-to-day -day problems. Uh, can I just, uh, just before I, I go to election, I just, um, one last question for, maybe for the, for the two of you. Um, Earlier this year, in around May, May this year, there was quite a bit of publicity around uh, the movement of people, Rohingya and Bangladeshi people, um, in the Adaman Sea and the Bay of Bengal, um, in terms of being pushed back by um, the Malaysian government, Indonesian government, Thai government, and eventually 
some were allowed to land in, in Aceh and um, also Malaysia. I'm just wondering if you've got any views on, on what happened in, that, in, in those particular cases. I know they were they conceded to allow people to remain for a period of time and provided some safety, so going against the idea of pushbacks in, in the region. Um, yeah, that was an interesting case as well because in the end, after the initial pushbacks, uh, the Malaysian government agreed to host 1,000 of the refugees, uh, or the boat people rather, pending um, status determination and resettlement. They made it very clear when they agreed to take them in that they would keep them for a year. Um, the situation in relation to Rohingyas uh, is very interesting uh, as, as compared to some of the other refugees because apparently the Rohingyas rarely ever get their names submitted for resettlement. And the word we hear from uh, some of the embassy folks that we've spoken to is that because Malaysia is a Muslim country, they expect that the Rohingya should be able to integrate locally uh, as compared to, for example, <clears throat> be resettled to a foreign country. But this is not the case because um, even within Malaysia, we have some Rohingya who've been there 20 years you know, they have children and grandchildren, all of whom never went to school. And unfortunately, a lot of them are falling into um, crime and illegal activity. I mean, what does one do if they never had an education or a job? So this is a social um, consequence that is coming up as a result of such a protracted uh, refugee situation. It's very interesting. Basically, it's similar of what happened to Indonesia. Uh, I think that Indonesia and Malaysia government have some, make some agreement uh, to solve this problem, and they uh, agree to uh, to keep them stay for one year. Uh, in Aceh, they they got a lot of support from uh, of the government and also the 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 local NGOs uh, to to Rohingya. Uh, what what is the problem is what happened after uh, 12 months because it is kind of impossible to to make sure that the, they can get resettled for uh, one one year after. However, the local government uh, they they have. A, they have opinion that it is that they agree to to resettle Rohingya to become a citizen of Indonesia, Aceh, basically. So it is a, a very good point. At least a very uh, it can be enter uh, to be become the very good things because uh, since Indonesia is not the state who ratified the convention 1951, it can be a good initiative. Even though we can criticize what is the motivation with, uh, behind it, but yeah, uh, what happened to Rohingya? The, the local government is very uh, quite supportive, rather than if we compare to the central government, what happened to them. Okay, so I'll come to action now. <laughs> Um, I think um, it would be interesting to hear a little bit about, I mean, Sri Lanka is usually seen as a country that is a source country for uh, refugees or asylum seekers leaving um, Sri Lanka. So it would be good to hear a little bit about the circumstances that has led to, and of course within 
I think many people don't know there's a huge number of people also internally displaced within within Sri Lanka. So it'd be good to hear a little bit about the circumstances, why people why people are leaving. And it'd be good then to follow up, because we've just heard about how some countries have dealt with not pushing back people. And, and I know that you've personally represented some of the people that have been intercepted and taken back to Sri Lanka from Australia. So I'd, I'd like to come to that afterwards, but first like to hear a little bit about why people are, are getting on boats in the first place. Why are they, why are they leaving? Yeah. I think, yeah, not only... Um sending country, we are also receiving country. Uh, I mean, we have uh, contributed to the world refugee population maybe around um, half a million to million and all over the world, Sri Lankan refugees, as well as we have around uh, 2,000 asylum seekers in Sri Lanka from uh, Af Afghanistan and Pakistan mainly, from other, few from other countries as well. But I will mainly speak about, uh, I mean, the Sri Lankans in other countries, and uh, the main the reason main reason for them to leave the country is the 30-year-old war, which was ended six years ago, which was not ended, but I mean, kind of a forcibly uh, <coughs> done. So uh, it the we had a conflict or we had a war, civil war between the, the majority Sinhalese community and, and between the minority uh, Tamil community, which was a, a brutal civil war. And even they've used uh, multi-barrel rocket launchers by the both sides to attach, attack each other. And also, as most of you may have heard, that even the both parties had even in, on, on their uh, own an air force as well as kind of a navy. So it was kind of a, a, a conventional war. So during this 30-year-old war, I mean, we have produced large number of refugees, those who are fleeing the country to save their lives. So the main reason for many boat people to come to Australia is they are, they are fleeing the country, their own country, uh, to save their life. And we have, uh, uh, there are about 100,000 to 120,000 Sri Lankans are living in India, the southern part of the India. Those who left the country by boat to India because that's the closest destination. There is an area called Mana, which is very close to about 16 to 20 kilometers from India. So they take that small strip of sea to cross the to cross to India, and then they took refugee in India. I mean, uh, even today, there are about nearly 100,000 uh, Sri Lankan refugees in India. And there are a large number of refugees in, in Malaysia, also in Thailand, Indonesia, Australia, and large number of them are in, in the Western countries, like starting from Italy, Switzerland, Germany, uh, UK, Norway, and other Scandinavian countries as well. So the, the main cause for their for their fleeing the country and, and decided that they want to be a salam seeker is uh, uh, the, 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 the ethnic uh, issue and the, the civil war. I mean, the Sri Lankan army is a pan-Singhalese army. The, 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 the 97, I could say 95% of the Sri Lankan army belongs to the, the Singhalese majority community. So they waged a war against the, the militants they call LTTE. So this war was like uh, ethnic polarization in the entire country. And, and there was a grown prejudice, and then there was a, 
uh, uh, riots time to time in the history. So majority of the Sri Lankan refugees left the country, uh, or Salamisics left the country because of the war. But there is also another uh, uh, little minority among the Sinhala community also left the country in 1989 to 1992 and thereafter as well because there were uh, a big, uh, I mean, it's a kind of a uh, sudden insurrection uh, uh, on uh, by the by the left-oriented militants, where nearly about uh, 60 to 100,000 people were either killed or disappeared in the south. So this is both both northern northern civil war and the southern insurrection made a large number of Sri Lankans to leave the country for to save their life, and. Throughout the last three decades, decades, the Sri Lankan democrat, democratic institution collapsed, uh, rule of law challenged, and uh, uh, there was no proper, uh, I mean, systems operated in the country. So, if if a politician wants to do something, they can do. I mean, if the politician wants to get, take revenge from somebody, they can do. And in the meantime, the people who lived in North and the East, uh, they were surrounded by the security forces all the time. The ratio was in the Northern Jaffna city was uh, six. For every six person, there was one army. And in the Wani, that is the heart of the, 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 uh, the war area, there were every four person, there was one security uh, security personnel, and and uh, some of their lands were taken over. I mean, there were large number of land belongs to the minority community was taken over by the army, and army was virtually part of the everything. Like they were, they had their hotels, they had their vegetable selling places, they had their parks, everything. So Sri Lanka is is giving given a very bleak picture or uh, unfavorable picture for the minorities. Laterly, soon after the war, uh, the, uh, there was another round of uh, uh, refugees may have arrived be simply because of the, the religious conflicts. So soon after the war, for the last six years, the, the, the intense violence among the religions also taken place. So that also may have uh, created, I mean, sent few refugees because some of them decided they cannot live in Sri Lanka. So it's, it's everything that, uh, that uh, created the future or, or uh, built, or how to say, uh, 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 send refugees out of Sri Lanka. It's ethnic war, it's religious violence, it's failure of democracy, and, and uh, also the hopelessness among the people. So the Sri Lanka was a violent society for 30 years. And the, the, the small arms were everywhere, and gang fights were there, and, and uh, so many issues. And uh, uh, the, most of the politicians, they, have, they had their own small armies during, I mean, uh, for, to fight with their rivals. So these were the, the reasons for, for us, I mean, in, uh, to send refugees or, or uh, refugees fleeing the country to save their lives. So. Uh, there can be there can be one or two people, or there can be very little marginal amount of people who left the country for the greener pastures. But majority are really gone out of the country to save their lives. It's be purely because of there was no democracy, there was no rule of law, there was no conducive environments in Sri Lanka to live as a dignified human beings. And human rights were totally, I mean, violated, uh, widespread. Uh, um, uh, torture, 
and detention uh, of thousands of people were detained in the detention camps and also large number of people were disappeared, young people, uh, I mean, at the age of 18 to 25, 18 to 30, and there are nearly 100,000 widows are there in Sri Lanka at the moment. So this is all these situations created large number of refugees uh, uh, fleeing the country to, to uh, I mean, find a place that they can live a dignified life. Uh just in, in relation to um, recent activity, so starting with um, the previous government um, in around October 2012, because we started to see uh, from around 200 arrivals to I think up to around 2,000 arrivals by boat. So there was a sudden surge out of um, Sri Lanka and the previous government introduced a system of enhanced screening which you're familiar with which where anybody who arrived by boat from Sri Lanka was interviewed um, to determine whether or not they had a prima facie refugee claim whether or not they uh, engaged Australia's protection obligations that was done without access to lawyers um, and in a very perfunctory manner and people were then. There was an agreement with, with the government of Sri Lanka, again, because I, I guess the Australian view was if the civil war is over in, in Sri Lanka, there is peace. We have an agreement with, with the country. People are coming here for a better life, and then they were then returned. And, of course, subsequent to that, under the, um, uh, the new government, we have a situation where there has been boats, and that's received publicity here, where boats of... Um, Sri Lankans were intercepted. Uh, similar enhanced screening, I called it enhanced screening, procedures were used on, on the boats um, to determine whether or not people had a claim. Um, again, no access to lawyers or um, um, being able to discuss uh, their cases with anyone and then return to Sri Lanka. And I know that, um, Lakshan, you have yourself represented people from who were subjected to that enhanced screening by the previous government and then people who were returned uh, under this government. So it'd be good to hear about well, what happened to those people that we... You can't, you can't hear me? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm... All right. So basically my point is, what I was trying to discuss was... There has been a number of asylum seekers returned from Australia who are from Sri Lanka under the previous government and, and the government, current government. Um, under the previous government, there were people who arrived in Australia and were subject to a very perfunctory screening process and sent back to Sri Lanka. Um, under this government, there have been boats intercepted, people interviewed on boats and then returned to Sri Lanka and Lakshan has... Um, met some of those people who were returned and I'm sure we'd be interested to hear um, what has happened to some of those people that you've represented, what has happened to them um, once they were returned because it was assumed by or, or assessed by the Australian government that the situation in Sri Lanka was such that they wouldn't face persecution and that they could be returned safely. Yeah, I think those who of us who work for peace in Sri Lanka never thought that the war will be end militarily. But unfortunately, it was end militarily. We thought of that we can go for a, a negotiated settlement, but it never reached, and it was ended militarily. The end of war does not mean that we reach peace in Sri Lanka. Uh, 
I mean, the end, by the end of the war, we got nearly about 300,000 to 400,000 IDPs, I mean, uh, 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 located in the, in, in the north and east in, in large number of refugee camps. So it took nearly three to four years to resettle them. And during that process, people were taken out of the refugee camps, were detained, were disappeared. The large number of people, even, even after 90, 2009, up to 2013-14, were disappeared by, by uh, white vans. This is a symbol of uh, the disappearances in Sri Lanka. Somebody comes in a white van, grab you into the, the van, and then you there was no news about you thereafter. So these things were continued. Not only that, the, 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 the democracy was really challenged when they ousted the, the, the chief justice of the country and, and they appointed whom they want, the, the, the previous regime of Sri Lanka, they appoint whom they want as a chief justice. So democracy was in a, in a challenge, and there was no proper institutions, and army, police, and all the security forces were under the regime, and, and the family governs the country. And then also, I mean, uh, there's no voice for dissent. Even, even the, the Sinhalese community, opposition politicians were threatened. There were several opposition politicians were killed, even at the, at, uh, in around 2010 and 2012. So these things were continued. So that doesn't mean the, the, the end of war, I mean, in the outside perspective, maybe everything is peace. But in, in the Sri Lankan experience, end of the war does not mean anything because we haven't reached any, any stage of reconciliation, compensation, reparation, or, or, or uh, seeking justice in Sri Lanka. So the conflict is still continuing. There's still there are a large amount of issues to be settled. Uh, the people need to be reconciled. So if somebody says that the things are over in Sri Lanka, if, if somebody says that Sri Lanka is having peace, no, I don't agree with that. So when you are not treated as an equal citizen in your country, obvious that you think of going some other country to have a dignified life. That is the reason that we continually get uh, boats into Australia. Now, in 2012, August, the, the Kevin Rudd government, as in uh, uh, Julia Gillard government, Julia Gillard government decided that they're going to have enhanced screening, which means that under refugee law, you're not given all the available legal remedies to exhaust the, all the available legal remedies. As a, as, a, as a signatory for 1951 convention, Australia bound by that. Australia is bound by that, but which, which they have not given. And, and they were, they were uh, just screened and, and, and returned. And then, then the, the uh, Tony Abbott government decided push back. So uh, I got clients from the both uh, systems where they were pushed back to Sri Lanka. I mean, some of my clients, even the, even the rape victims, they were told they were given only two minutes discussion with, through a satellite phone in the mid-sea with so much of disconnection to, to listen to somebody whom they have not seen, and the case was rejected. So these both experiences uh, I mean, created a lot of frustration about those genuine cases who left the country from Sri Lanka to seek uh, asylum in, in Australia. And I, 
I mean, once they return, some of them, even today, some of them are not in public. They are hiding themselves because they, they get sometimes, you know, one, one, once an uh, uh, Australian journalist came to meet uh, some of the, uh, uh, these returnees. And now I got a call from another party said, please ask that journalist to leave that place immediately because security forces are are behind that guy who returned to Sri Lanka or pushed back to Sri Lanka. For, for his security, the, the Australian journalist has to move. So I have to call them, okay, my dear friend, you have to move out of this area because it's now between our tents because of the security forces are, are behind that. This is not far back. I mean, this is 2014 that what happened. So I think Sri Lanka, until January 8th of this year, Sri Lanka went through a kind of a repressive governance, governance or repressive government, and and we we never had even our wildest dream that we we can do a regime change, but we did it. I mean, in in January 8, 2015, a new government, new president elected, and uh, August 17, a new prime minister elected. I mean, we we are in a hopeful situation, but it's too early to jump into conclusion that Sri Lanka is a better place to return. It is not. One of the things um, I'd be interested to hear from um, um, you, Lakshan, and also Unita, is about some of the information campaigns that have been organised by the Australian government that um, I know are, are perhaps um, reaching uh, refugees and asylum seekers in, in, in Sri Lanka, in Indonesia. Um, in terms of um, what is the current policy in Australia trying to attempting to leave either Indonesia or Sri Lanka to come to Australia, what sorts of impacts have you seen in the country in terms of some of those information campaigns? Do you want to ask? ask yeah, yeah. By both of you, yeah. What sort of impact? Yeah, so you, you talked about today, I heard you talking about some of the information campaigns, some of the TV ads. Um, yeah. We're familiar with some of them. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that, to know that Australian government is nearly spending around 10,000 Australian dollars per day in Sri Lanka for just to advertise with various advertisements in newspapers, in all television channels, uh, three times a day, five times a day, in all three languages in Sri Lanka. We have three languages. And and the simple the thing with the, the Campbell's uh, camouflage uniform and his face saying, don't come to Australia. No way. That's the advertisement that they are, they are, they are I mean, a country that went through a military uh, sup suppression and violence through for, for about 40 years, when a military person comes in your television and said, don't come, it gives a real threatening for people, whether you are a refugee, whether you are a genuine refugee, whether you are an asylum seeker, whether you, you, have, you have no way, but you have to run away from the country, but you have to think twice, oh, I'm going to another military dictatorship. So this is the implication that Australian government doing in Sri Lanka. And, and they have their proxy organizations in Sri Lanka working as NGOs and all over the country, they, in the coastal areas, they are going and telling people, you know, don't do, do, use irregular, irregular migration. You can do it in, in your own country. And, and uh, also, I mean, they do this project with the people. Their role is to stop both people coming out of Sri Lanka, to safeguard the Australian interests in Sri Lanka 
funded by Australia. So this is, this is how the Australian government works in Sri Lanka in relation to the stop boat people reaching out of Sri Lanka, whether you are genuine or not. I mean, Australian government stop people and they are, they are violating their international obligations. They're becoming a failed state. Australia is becoming a failed state by violating, by failing the international, international, international uh, obligation that they are signed. This is a serious situation. It gives wrong signals to the entire Southeast Asia, the rest of the Southeast Asian government and the South Asian government. Well, if Australia can do, a, such a democracy can do things like that, why can't we? Why can't we? The Australia is becoming undemocratic experiences under, especially under, under the Tony Abbott government, where he came to Sri Lanka during the Chogam, while the, 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 I mean, many part of the world, they refused to come to Sri Lanka for Chogam. Chogam is Commonwealth uh, uh, Conference, uh, and said Sri Lanka is remarkably uh, achieved uh, democracy and the human rights conditions in Sri Lanka are better. I mean, he's, he's a liar. In my opinion, he's a liar. He don't know about Sri Lanka. How can he, he just connived simply, how can he simply connive with the Sri Lankan government, the dictators, the perpetrators, and say, Sri Lanka remarkably achieved progress. I mean, the same year, I was threatened as a lawyer in my country, the, the, the white man came after me. And the same year, one of the senators of Australian parliament, she was deported while she was talking to me. And the same year, uh, one of the journalists from Australia was interrogated by the CID in Colombo, in Golfers Hotel, for about 11 hours, where I was his, his, her lawyer. So these th while things are happening, he said, Sri Lanka remarkably achieved a progress. <laughs> I think this, is, this, this cannot be. I mean, Australia has to change. He's been cut off. <laughs> Um, I'd be interested too to hear um, in terms of Indonesia, what has been um, the response as far as you've seen at UNITA from the Indonesian government about, about the recent interceptions and turn back of um, asylum seeker boats to Indonesia? Okay, uh, previously maybe I will come, uh, answer the question about uh, what is the impact of the Australian policy. Uh, first of all, uh, there's an assumption that uh, people who come to Indonesia, we, they will go to Australia. So if Australia doing anything to prevent they come, so they never come to Indonesia anymore. However, the statistics show that they keep coming and the number keep increase. So there's must be a, there's a, must be a problem. Why they keep coming even so the Australia uh, uh, closed down all the things to, uh, to Australia. Actually, I think that uh, they have to search why they are run away from their country, rather than they close down everything. Uh, I will uh, tell you uh, what is uh, live in the asylum seeker in Indonesia looks like, maybe. So the, uh, since Indonesia is not a, a, a country who signed the convention 1951, the one who handle everything about refugees, UNHCR. So after they come to Indonesia, they will register uh, by UNHCR. Then they have to wait uh, like 12 months before they got into first interview. And after they get interviewed, they have to long wait about like 
months or years before they got the decision. After that, they can go to appeal. Uh, they have when they go to appeal, uh, they have to wait for another years. Um, the case was closed, and for special occasion, there will be a reopening, but it is very exceptional. So what happened to all of these years? Uh, they, since Indonesia doesn't have any law to protect asylum seeker and refugee, uh, the immigration law, uh, uh, the immigration law uh, can detain them until like 10 years. So the immigration officer, they take all, most all asylum seeker go to detention center, and the condition is very, very bad. The detention center is very this overcrowded. Every detention center is overcrowded. Uh, in Jakarta itself, uh, they they sleep very tight, like sardines, every corner. And I heard from somebody else that uh, in Kupang they even uh, sleep at the yard because it's seriously overcrowded. And they. <laughs> In Kalideros, for example, they got access to water five, 15 minutes a day, and they just got three buckets of water. They can use it for hundreds of people. Uh, you, they can wash their body. They can use for everything, but it's only three buckets of people. And lots of people just are fighting to get us very limited resources. And, and they cannot walk. They cannot get education. They cannot do anything. So uh, I got story that a refugee from Sudan. They, he wants to go back to his country. I said, Why you want to go back to, to your country? Do you will save in your country? He said, No. Yeah, I will be die. However, it is better rather than here, because my job, my what I do right now is only eat and sleep, eat and sleep, eat and sleep, and nothing to do. Uh, and my friend in Sudan, they said that they need me because he persecuted by political activists. So he need me in my country. If I die, I better die in my country rather than I live here without do nothing. And if he, uh, that's happened to all the waiting, if he got resettled, he still wait until several years for get resettlement. So it's a very long, long process. When the, uh, the impact of the asylum, uh, when the Australia uh, get the, give policy that, that, uh, that after 1 July 2014, anybody who get registered in the UNSR as refugee, they are rejected. It means that the number of the resettlement uh, keep coming down. What happened uh, right now, uh, people from Indonesia still keep coming here. The refugee from Indonesia uh, keep coming to Australia. However, that is the person who are submitted, submitted like years ago. But right now, there's no refugees come to Australia anymore. Even so, the good news uh, is America, they open more resettlement. So mostly right now, they are go to America, but maybe several years later. I don't know. So the impact of the Australian, I think the most suffer is asylum seekers and the refugee itself. If we talk, uh, we will get the most impact is they are. They are the most sufferers. It's not Indonesia, it's not Australia, it's not us. It's the asylum seekers and the refugee itself. They're waiting for limbo in that kind of condition. It's very, very bad condition. And what happened to the turning back? Uh, from the perspective of the Indonesia government, basically it makes the 
diplomatic relation between Indonesia and Australia get, getting worse because Indonesia government thinks that the Australia <laughs> violating the sovereignty of the country. Uh, meanwhile, the 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 civil society thinks that we kind of reject this kind of uh, policy since Af we think that every country should accept asylum seeker and refugee to their country and give the protection for them. Uh, if they come to Indonesia, Indonesia must protect them. If they come to Australia, Australia must protect them. And it's same similar whether they are signing the convention or not signing the convention. Yeah, but since uh, we actually kind of upset, because <laughs> kind of upset uh, to see, uh, especially what happened to asylum seekers in Indonesia since uh, when the turning back happened to Indonesia, with the situation in Indonesia is not a, is not a very good condition. So yeah, they are very very suffering in Indonesia. Well, I, I think I've just got. Uh one round left of um, questions before we go to questions from the audience. So I might just ask each one of you, I don't want to end on a, on a really bad note, um, so I might just ask each one of you to talk a little bit about what do you see as you know, some positive stories or what direction would you like to see the region go to to provide, as you said, um, the people who are suffering by most of these policies are refugees and asylum seekers. What sorts of things, what positive things can you see can, that can happen in the region to improve the situation? Yeah. I mean... Personally, I have no any animosity with Australia or Tony Abbott, but I think uh, I think we have to look at in a, as a huh? as as a uh, I mean human human beings. Now, if Australia really wants to stop both people from Sri Lanka, they must engage with the Sri Lankan government on human rights. Which instead of doing that, what they did is giving bribes. A coastal, uh, two coastal guard ships, just to the, the I mean, handover by the by the Scott Morrison and and Tony Abbott in the, in the, about six months ago, and and they send their uh, Australian federal police officers, and uh, that Australian police officers were in the torture chambers in Sri Lanka while people were tortured, and and this is not the style that we expect as a Sri Lankans if you really want to to develop the, the human rights conditions and life conditions of a country, where you can see, okay, if the life conditions were developed, then, then uh, you may not get both people. I mean, there are, there are situations that, that uh, created for Sri Lanka to, I mean, people who leave from Sri Lanka. So my, my, my uh, hope is that if Australian government can positively engage with the Sri Lankan government to develop the human rights conditions, I think we can look after our country. I mean, we, if, there, if, the, if, we, if we have conducive environments for our people in our country, I don't think anybody will leave uh, my country because it's, it's, it's a nice country to live. But since there is no such uh, environment, they have no option. It is for the same for everybody. I'm, I'm a Christian, and Jesus did the same thing with his mother and father. When, when the Herod uh, tried to kill people, he had no option. He left the country. That's it became a refugee. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the same thing for everybody. In, in, in most of religion, this is a story. So, the role of 
us should be the creating conducive environments for people to live, respect the human rights, respect the law, uh, rule of law, respect uh, uh, democracy, strengthening the democratic institutions, which Australia can do a lot. Which instead of doing that, they're looking for short-term, quick answers for the whole issue of both people, which have created further havoc for the chaos. I think, I think my opinion, the people of Australia and the government of Australia, if they really, really don't see any, any, any reason that Sri Lankan should come to Australia, then engage with us on positive note. And in the meantime, always to keep space. If there's a genuine case, there are a lot of genuine cases. Sometimes even in the best environment and conducive environments, somebody may be discriminated based on their, the five grounds that UNHCR on, on, on their uh, religion, on their political opinion, on their ethnicity, they might be discriminated. So keep that space in every country to, for them to come and exhaust the, all the available legal remedies. If fail, then decide. Still, there is another final position that is non-refoulement. Even, even they should, they should uh, try on refoulement. Then we can decide. But without any of these things, without in keeping in place any of these uh, uh, provisions, engage with the Sri Lankan government through bribes, through personal relationship, and lying is not take us to anywhere. I had to agree with um, Lakshan with his earlier statements about um, strengthening democracy in the region. Um, on the one hand, because of international law and you know sovereignty, states don't want to interfere in the domestic politics and domestic issues of other states. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you have this problem, and how do you actually deal with it? Now, within each of the states in Southeast Asia, there are people, organizations, institutions even, like the bar and the judiciary, who want to see change, who want to see reform. And those, those institutions are suppressed by the, these governments. Yet these are the very institutions that could use some support. So for example, in Malaysia, the Malaysian bar is very vocal. Um, lawyers are heavily engaged in strategic litigation to try to um, change the laws or achieve uh, progressive interpretations of the laws uh, in accordance with human rights. But on the other hand, we've got a government that doesn't want to re relinquish the power it's held because of an autocratic system of uh, ruling. Um, in 1998, for example, one of, the, one of our lawyers was the special rapporteur, the UN special rapporteur for the independence of the judiciary. Because of statements that he'd made, uh, several companies sued him for defamation. And uh, he tried to set aside those suits on the basis that he had immunity. Um, these are all very trite principles under international law. But um, the courts in Malaysia held that uh, you're just a part-time unpaid uh, commenter of human rights, and we don't think that the immunity that you're claiming should have in any effect um, on domestic 
uh, cases. So this, this should provide us with an insight of just how much respect there is for international law in some of these regions. And therefore, the solutions in many of these states, I feel, are domestic. And institutions domestically need help, as much as help as they can possibly get. They are certainly doing a lot of it. Unfortunately, Malaysia is not one of the countries that is receiving overseas development assistance from Australia. But many of the other countries in the region are. I think that those are very positive. Um, imp uh, it's a very positive thing that Australia is doing, and it should continue to be strengthened. But unfortunately, AusAid, or as it's now known, WasAid, has been cut. <laughs> Uh, and this is a bad thing because this is where um, th this is what the money should have been going to. This is where the the money should be spent. I feel. Thanks. Yeah, I think uh, for the solution. Actually, I believe that this is no matter. Uh, this is. Uh, not a one country obligation. This is all obligation to solve the refugee and asylum seekers. Uh, but I hope that we, all of us, can uh, go together with the mutual agreement. What can we can support each other, and especially uh, to support what kind of. Uh, actually, there is a good initiative uh, from refugee and also from civil society in Indonesia how to protect asylum seekers and refugees. Since this is still a new issue. Uh, for example, in, in Cisarua, they make some of uh, Cisarua Learning Center. It's, make, uh, it's made by the refugee. And, and in Indonesia, we have the voluntary-based uh, civil society network. Rather than uh, support the detention so people cannot get out uh, and go to Australia, it is better than people to make a like friendly uh, environment to the asylum seeker and refugee in Indonesia, and hopefully they can be resettled in Indonesia, become a citizen of Indonesia, and and I think that will be great if uh, every country they can do the burden sharing and do whatever that they can to uh, to uh, protect the refugee and asylum seekers. All right. Um, thank you so much, uh, everyone. Um, so uh, before we move on to the question and answer session, please uh, join me in thanking the speakers for their very informative and thought-provoking contribution. Okay, so... Um, now it's all time for all of you to have an opportunity to ask questions of our four speakers, including Marianne, who uh, knows an awful lot about what's happening in Australia, and Nauru. Um, and uh, please put your hand up if you wish to ask a question. Um, and uh, there's going to be roving mics. Uh, Diana has one and Matt has another. So wait for the mic to come to you. And please try to keep your questions brief so you can, we can get through as many as possible. OK, I can see one person over there, and then one person over there for the other mic, and one down here. And that's the limit of my memory, three items at a time. <laughs> so, OK. Say something now, but um, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I think um, we're looking at the largest number of people displaced, you know, since the Second World War, which is creating huge challenges. 
Uh, I think that um, different countries are reacting in different ways to that. I think we have seen some really positive things, trying to focus on the positive um, coming out of Germany, um, Angela Merkel um, recently, and also um, in France, where they have talked about trying to um, push back against some of the xenophobia, some of the um, concerns that people have about the number of people arriving. So I think that you know we need to see that kind of leadership in other countries where they are talking about, well, you know, if we look at Angela Merkel, for example, talking about people that are, are coming to Germany, the Syrians, why are they coming, what are they fleeing, and that these are people who are genuinely feel, fleeing persecution. Um, that they're, you know, that they are looking to share the burden, which is largely fallen at them, you know, previously on on Greece and Italy, and I think if when you are looking at um, countries which are shouldering a very large burden of, of people arriving, you will start to see fracturing within within those communities. So we need to see other countries um, stepping up and saying, you know, we need to be looking to provide some form of temporary refuge to people who are fleeing these situations. Yeah, I'd just like to speak to that for a bit. Um, I was looking at the statistics on refugee hosting recently. I mean, they're only 2013 statistics, but for example, in Malaysia, there's one native, sorry, one refugee to every 341 refugee, and uh, 341 natives. In Australia, it's one refugee to every 1,031 refugees, uh, natives. Now, bearing in mind that Australia has been receiving refugees from the Second World War, and Malaysia only since the 70s, the fact remains that we still host larger numbers. Yes, our human rights are not to the standard and the and the, the services and rights extended to refugees are not of the same caliber. But in terms of hosting, in terms of international burden sharing, for a country that hasn't signed on to the refugee convention, does not have legal obligations to do so, it's actually doing a pretty good job. Um, on the other hand, we have, and in answer to the, your question as to what might be some drivers of these um, changes in attitudes, I feel that it's because of countries like Australia and what's going on in Europe, where they have signed on to the convention and yet they're pushing back and doing everything in their power to avoid their obligations. The countries which from colonial time, because of colonial um, rule during the time when the convention was, was uh, first uh, developed, be those countries who, who never signed on to the con convention now feel, as the cycle completes, they just feel, well, why should we? These countries who have signed it, they're trying to push back. And so the efforts to increase uh, signing on to the refugee convention are not going very well. Um, and I, I think a lot has to be said about the um, leadership by example. Okay, Lakshana Unita, do you have anything to add? Well, I think I agree with both Marian and Renuka, so I leave the question. Unita? Uh, is the question why people can go to the one country where others not? Is it for resettlement? I know, it's about why, why people are um, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know what is the global perception, but I know uh, from Indonesia, uh, when I met uh, with the MFA, it's kind of uh, some a perception to see that asylum seeker and refugee as a burden to the country. Uh, so they're kind of scary. Uh, uh, they, they say that our, our, our citizens still have a hardship. We still have a lot of issues to do. So if uh, some people come to our country, it will be more trouble for us. Um, I don't, and they kind of scared that if they uh, accept uh, one uh, refugee, there will be more will come. So uh, this kind of assumption, whether even though in Cambodia and Philippines, when after they, they ratified the convention, the, the number of the uh, arrival just decreased. So I don't know whether they kind of have some of scientific proof for that. But it's kind of, a, it's kind of some of assumption they, to think that it will become a burden to the country, it, it will involve more jobs, it will be more tax. Uh, I, I don't know whether in Australia you have the same thing or not, but yes. it has happened in Indonesia. Okay, Matt, um, there was the gen yeah, that gentleman over there was the next one. Yeah. Sorry. Hi, my question's about solutions, so shifting back to the last topic. Um, something that's put forward by academics and NGOs in Australia is the idea of a regional framework for protection of asylum seekers. So Australia assumes more of the burden in exchange for your countries acknowledging refugees and processing, that kind of thing. Could you speak to that about the viability of that from a civil society perspective and what your governments would perceive the Australian government would need to do to make that work? Well, it, I think it really depends on where the resources for such uh, processing are going to come from. What's clear to me is that the Malaysian uh, immigration authorities, which is probably the likely authority that's going to do that kind of processing, because things, all things related to refugees just tend to be channeled towards the home ministry uh, under which the, the, the immigration department operates. And the way the immigration department operates is that it just doesn't have the capacity to do that sort of thing. The main problem is most of them struggle even to speak English. They don't have a lot of education, probably up to year 50, uh, to the age of 15. You can get a job in the immigration department if you've just got year nine education. Your English isn't very good. And this makes up the majority of the human resources of the immigration department. Generally, the immigration department's work, apart from small numbers who are involved in prosecution, generally the, the immigration department's work is manning detention centers and um, checking biometric records for entry at airports. So it's very, very low skilled. Now, ask them to do something like process a refugee status determination claim, just not possible. The resources to hire people, the civil society, uh, civil, the civil service itself is clunky, expensive, and the government is doing whatever it can to limit intake. So, I just don't see a framework like that working because the government is not going to put aside that kind of money and resources for an issue that is just, there's no political will to look at. Well, what is the interest in doing all of this for not even citizens? 
So that, that's my concern about that kind of framework. Okay, um, Unita, do you have uh, comments on that? Yeah, it is similar what happened to Malaysia. I wonder whether our government meet each other and they do the same thing. They speak the same language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's happening. Okay, Lakshan? Well, it's not that relevant for me. Okay. <laughs> All right, um, and then there was a lady, um, yeah, so if you could give the microphone to her. Um, yeah, hello, I'd just like to very briefly introduce myself. I'm working with um, refugees in the south of Jakarta in refugee protection and I have a question for Unita. Um, you mentioned the, um, the kind of um, compassion and um, ability of Aceh and how they seem to be responding to the Rohingya situation with much more fluidity than Java or Kupang or other places. And we find a lot of um, barriers um, with many issues in Java. Do you have any idea how they could, I don't know, like have this Achenese compassion in a like the momentum of this compassion spread to other parts of Indonesia to help facilitate further protection? Yeah, so, should I answer that? Yeah, uh, yeah. basically uh, people in Indonesia, uh, they are kind of welcome uh, asylum seeker and refugee. Uh, especially for Rohingya because of the religious interest. Uh, so Rohingya got a special treatment rather than the other uh, kind of re refugees. So the support is not only from Aceh. It's support actually from others, the other uh, province of Indonesia, how they support Rohingya. In Jakarta itself, there's a kind of uh, several organizations, usually Islamic organizations. They give a lot of support and Rohingya, to Rohingya. I think uh, whatever the motivation or maybe the, in the name of the solidarity, uh, they, they try to help. Uh, yeah, but it is a good entry point to see uh, uh, as a gateway to uh, protect the asylum seeker and refugee in Indonesia since many of them, they want to help, but they don't know what is asylum seeker, what is refugee. So why they don't want to uh, come back to their country? In one meeting, I met uh, uh, with some NGO. Uh, they said that uh, uh, they make a survey that most of the Rohingya people, almost all the Rohingya people, doesn't want to go back to their country. I wonder why. Uh, yeah. So they don't know what 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 is a refugee, what is asylum seeker. Uh, so lots of people want to help, but they don't know uh, what is asylum seeker, refugee. So it needs to be uh, just to make sure what, to explain what is that. Okay, we got um, the gentleman there, then uh, Pamela Kerr, and I think by that time, given. We'll see how long it takes to answer those two questions and take it from there. My name's Max Costello. I was a submitter to the Moss Review and again to the Senate Select Committee. Uh, I'm an ex-health and safety prosecuting solicitor. My co-submitter was a policy um, person. We both worked for WorkSafe, a health and safety regulator in Victoria. Um, not so much a question as a point of major information. I'll be brief. Uh, if you want to see more, go to the 
website of the Senate Select Committee, look for submissions number 26 and seek out the four-page supplementary one which summarises what I'm going to say very briefly here. And also, about four days ago, I got published in an online leftish independent journal called Independent Australia. And that's what I'm going to say in about one minute. Uh, the Australian Government, the Commonwealth of Australia, is committing deliberately, systemically and over a long period of time and knowingly criminal offences under the Work, Health and Safety Act 2011 of Australia because detention centres, whether they're onshore or offshore, run by Australia, are workplaces and the law says in essence that the health and safety of both workers and, quote, other persons must be protected. Uh, I think I'll just leave it at that because that is a fundamental point. What should be happening is that the regulator, Comcare, should be prosecuting the Commonwealth of Australia, which is effectively the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, possibly the two major um, contractors on, um, on Nauru as well. I'll just finish on this point. The Work, Health and Safety Act says this act applies to the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is liable for offences. That's section 10. Section 14 says uh, no duty holder, including the Commonwealth as an operator of workplaces, can transfer that duty to anyone else, such as a government, another government. And section 272 says a duty holder cannot contract out of its obligations. Okay, thank you for that information. I'm sure people in the audience are there to take it and run with it. Um, so, uh, and... Uh, that was Pamela and then that gentleman there, and I think by that time we would have run out of time, so we'll, um, we'll keep it at that for the moment. Following on from Max and um, the lack of duty of care on Nauru, I'd like to ask the panel why you go so easy on Australia. Why does your country let us get away with it? We are the richest, the most best resourced, the most politically stable, nation in the region and we are the bad guys. We're the ones who expect you to provide the boundaries. When we talk about a regional framework, what we really mean is we want the Asian nations, particularly Indonesia with its tiny population, <laughs> to erect a huge wall around our country and make sure that no one gets here. What will it take for the countries in the region to wrap our knuckles and make us stop doing what we're doing because we are ashamed of ourselves. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, Yudita, we'll take it one by one if you've got a, a response to Pamela's uh, point. Yeah, I think it is need a collaboration between all of us. Uh, I believe that every country should do everything that we can. Uh, what can happen to Australia? Uh, if we want to change what happened here, I think it's uh, not only from Australia, but also from Asia, from Indonesia, from every country. We can uh, push together, work together, uh, support together. I think this is kind of uh, a mechanism that we, uh, we can try to do together. Uh, 
here's there's an apron. Uh, there's kind of a network of the refugee uh, network in Asia Pacific, and I think that we can do something. We we try to whatever we can do, but it is need a support uh, from. Every, everyone, including all of you, to change uh, this matter and to protect asylum seeker and refugee. Renika? Well, I, I think that it's interesting that you think that the civil society has that kind of influence over your government, <laughs> because if, if it did, I, I'm sure you would have been able to do it better than we could ever. Um, Australian civil society is certainly a lot stronger and has the capacity to change its government, unlike in many of our countries. Election. I don't know how to answer. I mean, do you want us to stop people leaving Sri Lanka as a civil society? I don't think we can do because, you know, the, the bad, bad governance is creating more and more new refugees. So my only solution uh, is not the regional framework, but engage with the governments in, in, in the, the sending countries and create democratic environments. I mean, that's the only solution in my opinion. I mean, regional sol uh, framework is just to protect Australia, nothing more than that. Okay, now there's a gentleman over there, Matt, um, <laughs> uh, with the moustache. <laughs> Thank you. My name's Chris Lamb, and I used to be an Australian diplomat, diplomat a thousand years ago, and then I worked for the Red Cross. But what I've heard tonight is very encouraging, but what I didn't hear worries me a little. Governments like the Australian government have decided to discard humanitarian concern. We don't talk about asylum seekers and refugees as if they've got any kind of human soul. We treat them as statistics. And we decide that the way we've got to deal with that is by creating a discussion about criminalization, business models, chasing criminal syndicate gangs. Now, I don't mind chasing criminal syndicates, but I do remember, and Nita, you might remember too, when the Howard government and the Indonesian government set up the Bali process on human trafficking. They set in motion a process of law enforcement discussion. And very much of the debate now about asylum seekers and refugees is about law enforcement and border protection. Now we've come to the point that we've changed the name of the government department to emphasize border protection and take out any humanitarian concern about the people. And I see this being copied around the world. I, Australia probably wasn't the first to do it, but it's certainly one of the noisiest. Do you think that we can ever get in this region away from national security and border protection and back to the humanitarian concerns that asylum seekers have? Okay, well, starting with Unita again, do you have a... Uh, just clarify the question. Uh, do you mean that it is better to use humanitarian approach rather than security approach? Yes, how do we get away from the police, from the police law enforcement branch back to where we once were on humanitarian protection? And how to influence, how to influence become. I think it's near uh, need of the, need to uh, convince how, uh, convince the government uh, to, uh, today to understand what is the core of the problem. Uh, the security approach doesn't doesn't give any. In my opinion, it's not give any impact. Like Australia, they they use the security approach, but uh, asylum seekers keep coming because the problem is not is not how to 
to protect the, the border, but why they are leave their country. Uh, so our job is not to prevent everybody to coming and out because it cannot, it cannot be, it cannot be prevented. As long as there is a problem, it cannot be prevented. How how much and how big the security approach they can do, they will left, they will go, uh, whatever. So the humanitarian approach is actually uh, just uh, the make, uh, to ensure human rights. And, and if we use the, uh, the, uh, the cause of the humanitarian pr uh, problem, so we have, to, we have to support where they live and just to give the better approach. So the government, I think government must understand this and uh, what is the, the solution to solve the core problem. I think that's uh, my opinion. Okay. Um we're actually rapidly running out of time, so um, brief uh, response from Renika or Lakshan or Marianne. I was thinking Mary. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to add one thing. I think um, uh, in South Asia, if you take, uh, in India there are nearly about one to two million refugees, whether they like it or they are accommodating. And in Pakistan, there are about two to three million Afghan refugees, they accommodate. I mean, well, Sri Lankans are a bit of island, island mindset, so we are worried about even though we are sending large number of refugees to other countries. In the meantime, uh, it is not uh, only that the sending country is responsible for the refugees, but also the neighbors. I mean, some of the conflicts that create large number of refugees are part of the the, the, the politics of the neighbors, politics of the superpowers, politics of the, uh, uh, I mean, other nations. So these things, I mean, if somebody asks what happened to Libya, Libya, Libya was not a refugee-centering country a few years back. Now they are sending a large number of refugees to the world. Syria, same. And Iraq, same. Iran, same. What sort of policies brought these countries into refugee-sending countries? This needs to be talked about. I mean, not only the regional frameworks and you know, refugee policies, policing is just enough. The politics plays a bigger role. I mean, our international politics has to be bound by the international human rights norms, not the interest of various powerful nations. These various powerful nations has created havoc in this world where, where their interferences create a large number of refugees. I think we should not just take refugees out of politics. Refugees is part of the world politics. Refugees is part of nation state concept. And we are creating our own uh, uh, walls around us. So these things have to be taken seriously. I mean, I don't think we have time to talk all these deep subjects, but I think good for uh, thinking. Thank you. Okay. Um, Renika, do you have anything to add? Yeah, just to add to what he said, um, just as uh, one of the, the members of the audience talked about Australia being the richest and most powerful in the region, I think the civil society in Australia also has that kind of power comparatively. Um, and um, a lot can be done to push governments in the region to take to task the governments that are, for example, uh, in the refugee-producing countries. Malaysia, because of its uh, ASEAN connection, and all the other ASEAN countries, for example, will never say boo to Myanmar 
for all its human rights violations because of the principle of non-interference. And I feel that civil society needs to be doing a bit more towards pushing their governments to take the, the other countries to task. Okay, thank you. Marianne, do you have a...? Uh, just really briefly, I think that you've um, raised a really important point, Chris, in terms of language. And I think thinking about how we talk about these issues, we have, particularly in Australia, and it's not unique to Australia, you've seen the same in the UK and the US, and we're following those models of talking about, you know, border security, um, criminalisation of, of movement of people instead of thinking about those, those individuals that are affected or, or, or taking it back to humanitarian principles that I know organisations like the Red Cross where you've worked, you know, were fundamentally concerned about. So I think, again, you know, just picking up in, in terms of some of the issues that um, we can do, I think, is to think about some of the really strong actions and the, the strong civil society we have in, in Australia, to work with civil society in other countries in the region, to try to, you know, put the human face and individual back into the centre of, of this debate. And I think, you know, a really great example is what happened here in Melbourne on Friday where, you know, people reacted very strongly to the idea of, 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 of a police approach to people who were, you know, walking around amongst us to stopping people that we identify as non-citizens as not deserving to be within the community to sort of, you know, stop them and ask them for their visas was horrifying to, to a lot of people and, and the government was rightly condemned um, for doing it all round. So I do hold out hope. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now... First of all, apologies, Chris, for my horrible mental blank. <laughs> um, I knew I recognised your face. I couldn't remember your name. Um, okay. We've got some thank yous to get through. Um, I should, first of all... Bloody thing. Okay, I should, first of all... Um, uh, acknowledge that almost all the expense of bringing three of our speakers to Melbourne has in fact been borne by the organisers of that workshop that Marianne uh, just talked about at the beginning. Um, and so the, our thank yous to the workshop organisers from Curtin University and uh, Australian National University and Swinburne University are up there. I would like to thank them very sincerely for their generosity in allowing us to piggyback this event off their workshop. Um, I would like to thank uh, Latrobe Law School and Latrobe Asia for their funding of this event. Dana Hetherich and Matt Smith of Latrobe Asia for much of the hard work that went on into putting on this event. Sharon Groves, Lise Leitner, Maya Mark Trabsky, Craig Over, Ned Simpson of the Latrobe Law School for their assistance, and the staff of the Refugee Council of Australia for their help along the way. And finally, thank you so much for your presence at this event, for your enthusiastic participation, and for the donation that you have made to the Asylum Seeker Research Centre through your ticket purchase. Thank you. Remember, there are handouts to pick up at the front. <laughs> <laughs>